to the truth in this art. I'm your host, Rob Lee. And once again, we're back in Philadelphia. And today I am just excited to welcome my next guest. They are the Associate Director of Organizational Culture at the Japan America Society of Greater Philadelphia. They're also a film and media specialist, educator, arts administrator, and published author who has held uh, various leadership roles in the nonprofit's art organizations for over a decade. As a person of biracial Japanese-American heritage who is deeply involved in this community, he's also had an expertise in cultural sensitivity training, community organizing, and advocacy issues related to Asian-American and Pacific Islander community. Please welcome Rob Busher. Thank you for, uh, for coming on to the podcast. And um, before we get like too deep and embedded into it, much like a tick. I think that's the thing, right? Ticks get embedded into the skin. Uh, could you share your story? What is the Rob Busher story? Yeah, so I'm a mixed race Japanese American, uh, born and raised in rural suburban Connecticut, uh, in a community where my mom and sister were the only other Japanese Americans. And then uh, when I went to college, I moved abroad to the United Kingdom. I lived in London for about five five and a half years uh, in between, spent some time living, uh, studying in Japan as well, and then uh, moved here to Philadelphia at the end of 2010. Um, I've spent most of my career since then organizing film festivals. I also curate a lot of visual art gallery shows and uh, musical performances, and I'm a musician myself, a, a guitarist and a vocalist. Nice. Nice. Um, I like when people uh, are doing the creative thing and then being in the kind of facilitating and supporting community sort of side of things as well. And I can only imagine, you know, because whenever I think of London, I just think of sweet London. I think of I listen to a lot of old uh, like 80s music. It's like, oh, here's the cure. Here's Morrissey. Here we go. And uh, my partner keeps telling me because of the way my face looks and the fact that it's always just teeth and me smiling. She's like, where's your eyeliner? Where, where are you at? And I can only imagine you wearing eyeliner now because of the whole London and the, the ruffled shirts and all of that. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. I did buy a ruffled shirt to wear on stage when I lived <laughs> out there. was playing in bands. But uh, yeah, I mean, London's music scene was incredible. I was there uh, from 2005 until about 2000, end of 2010. Um, and so that was kind of the era of like Arctic Monkeys and, you know, a lot of these very hip, like Sheffield based, like British indie rock bands um, who, of course, you know, made the move to London, as we all did. Um, but it was interesting. I, I had a chance to visit recently over the holidays, was in London for a couple of nights. And um, it's one of those timeless cities. Uh, it, it just it remains so cool. Yeah. It's changed so much, of course, even in the you know ten years that I've been gone. But um, you see the kind of remnants of that music scene of of like the '60s and the '70s when British rock became really relevant here. Uh, but even in terms of like punk rock and the influence that that had, um, total aside. But uh, one of the things that really fascinated me, living in Hammersmith, which was uh, historically a West Indies, like Afro-Caribbean community, as well as like a poor working class white English neighborhood. And oftentimes that's where the music came from. So right. in like the 70s, when you have an influx of the West Indies migration, all of those folks bringing reggae and roots music into the British uh, consciousness, 
and of course that's where you get things like ska right yeah. and and that is just totally natural to see like punkers and street punks you know brushing shoulders with the rastafari and like <laughs> all part of london's musical economy that's that's really that's really cool and i i like to really like tap back into some of the music stuff where you know it's like i'll go th through and listen to like the specials and i had to put my brother on because my brother's name is rudy and i'm like hey this is literally a theme song for you you should listen to it he's like what is this he's like oh shit they say my name in it <laughs> so, and because the only reference point he had was for a very long time he's gonna find us hilarious for a very long time uh, we used to go to uh like the flea market swap meets and we would get mm -hmm. like knock off whatever and for the longest time he had these uh i don't know if they were iceberg or fubu but it was these jeans that had like uh the cosby kids on there so like fat albert and all and it was one character named rudy and he would wear those and i was like that's a patch of a character name after you on your butt <laughs> i was like is that what you want to go with <laughs> <laughs> so Talking about being being younger, right? That's you know, almost a segue. Uh, talking about being younger, what were some of the things you were into creatively? Obviously, film was was a part of that, and you know, I would imagine you know watching film growing up. Um, talk about that a bit, and you know, like what type of movies were you into? What type of creative things were you into as a young person? Yeah, so I grew up, um, as I mentioned, in a fairly monocultural, monoracial environment. Um, the town of Bethel, Connecticut was like 98% white, you know, so uh, pretty uh, sheltered from diversity of any kind, uh, except for the fact that, you know, my family's mixed race and we had family all over the country who came from the Japanese American diaspora. And um, one of the really important, I think, cultural influences, especially in childhood, my great grandmother, who was a Japanese immigrant, she lived until uh, 2006 when I was a college freshman. And she introduced me to Japanese cinema in an era when I'm sure she acknowledged looking at American popular film and television. The only times you saw Japanese faces on screen were like Pat Morita as like Mr. Miyagi in The Karate Kid or you know maybe also pat morita in in happy days right <laughs> right and he plays like a short order cook with a like a bad chinese accent um and so not having any sort of positive role models especially as a young boy um that idea of, of what it is to have japanese masculinity uh she was able to introduce me at at probably age seven or eight to toshiro mifune sort of like the epitome of the cool like masculine Japanese martial arts samurai gangster in all of his films, like from the 1940s until like the 80s. And um, I just fell in love with him and, and his his film, the style of cinematography from Japan. Um, and it eventually led me to kind of pursue that in my career. Um, I, and I think then the other very strong influence um, on in terms of my music my dad's a blues harmonica player and, uh, you know, I grew up around blues music and listening and playing blues music on my guitar, although I was more into hardcore and punk when I was living in the States. It wasn't until living overseas that, that it sort of struck that chord and I guess uh, missing the familiarity of, of American music yeah. blues to me is really the epitome of that. Um, and kind of delving into that further in, in my own um, career as a musician. 
was kind of exciting uh, to do in the context of being an American abroad, um, and especially in London, having these influences from so many parts of the world. I mean, London is such an international city. Yeah. At least when I lived there, four out of five residents of London were born outside of the UK. And uh, a lot of my friends were Middle Eastern, um, Arab, uh, and also the Muslim uh, British folks who I, I met. And some were also immigrants. But just kind of looking at where things like the pentatonic scale, for example, like mm -hmm. the five tones that are used within blues music are the same tones that are used within Middle Eastern music which are the same tones that are used in Japanese music. And uh, these sort of wavelengths that connect us uh, sonically yeah. across communities, across continents, across time periods um, were, were things that, you know, I think became more evident to me that the more that I traveled and, and the more that I experimented playing music with other people around the world. Music, food, those things just... And maybe maybe clothing. I'm sure I'm thinking of other ones that come to mind, but those are the two that pop out. Music and food. That's where those points of fusion are at, and that sort of overlap. It's like we use this. You use that. Let's figure out how these things go together. And sometimes it could be really bad fusion. You're like, I don't think I want that. And other times it's magic. So that's what I'm kind of hearing, like sonically, when you're describing like the scales that are there. Yeah, well, the scales and the tones and, you know, so for example, this is something that you wouldn't imagine in a million years would work, but um, I was the lead guitarist in an Iranian alternative rock band in London. Our, our singer sung in Farsi and uh, a lot of the, the scales that our, our music was in, the chord progressions, were kind of a mix between blues-based American rock and Middle Eastern sounds. But in particular, we started to fuse the sound of like slide guitar, you know, the, the epitome of like blues, like down home country folk blues yeah. with these really interesting sounding Middle Eastern scale and chord progressions. And um, and it worked. Yeah. That's, do you do you have uh, time these days to actually play and kind of dip back into uh, music? Yeah, most recently, uh, during the pandemic, I guess, in 2020 and 2021, I, I hosted and produced my own podcast series called Look Towards the Mountain, uh, Stories from Heart Mountain Incarceration Camp. And we explored kind of the daily life within the American concentration camp in World War II, where the Japanese Americans were placed in uh, Heart Mountain, Wyoming. And music plays a big role in that. Um, yeah. And the, the kind of approach to the podcast series since it was set in the mid 1940s, my mind immediately went to like 1940s radio plays. And so I wanted to try and recreate to the extent that I was able using uh, spoken dialogue, uh, oral history recordings from people who lived this experience directly. Um, in cases where it was text based only, we brought in voice actors to actually voice those parts. And then I did the music and the soundtrack for it and had an uh, incredible time in you know a 13-hour limited series just reconnecting to music and, yeah. and doing it for the purpose of a, a project that was very uh, intimate um, as it related in parts to my own family's story here in the United States as Japanese Americans, but then also navigating how do we explore what it was like to be a Japanese immigrant or a Japanese American in 1943 in rural Wyoming and how does that sound and what kinds of musical influences do we integrate and 
you know, great. I get to play with my shamisen, my, my three string Japanese banjo, but wait, let's put in some slide guitar here too. Or yeah. I, I can like play around and do a Sergio Leone esque like cowboy Western soundtrack for some of the episodes where we're talking about Buffalo bill and the origins of, of that region of the West. And yeah, just had a great time. And, and so that was the last significant project. Um, but of course I, I continue to play music. That's amazing. And, um, I think it definitely connects to sort of this this background and uh, within media and almost in almost also in preserving culture. I think where you know we do this thing. I feel like every couple of years we forget what's happened in the last five years. It's like oh, this is really what went down. And when you get into these conversations around the history of maybe marginalized groups and the diaspora of certain groups when it comes to this country. Asian folk, black folk, all, all of those. It's like, oh yeah, this is actually what you guys experience. No, no, no. You got to include us in the conversation. I think we know how to talk about it because we, or by extension, our family has lived to it in some way. So I think being able to do something that's a, a media property that's very immersive and it speaks to history, I think that's a great way of going about it in addition to all of the other great work that you're doing. Um, so I want to talk about film a little bit more, but I want to go into this next question because I think it's pertinent, um, at least where we're at. How did how did your background as an author, as a film and media specialist and educator kind of lead you into sort of this community organizing and advocacy work? And that's why I thought it was really connected there. <laughs> yeah. So in reality, I don't know that they're actually disconnected ever, at least in my own experience. Sure. Um, I think that the be, being an artist or a writer uh, oftentimes uh, sort of places you at the margins of society, kind of looking from the outside in, uh, being in a position, I, I think, of power and privilege to be able to critique the things, uh, but then also this kind of discomfort uh, and, and lack of belonging, um, which in a, a certain extent, I, I think, you know, summarizes the experience of, of being a mixed race individual. Um, you know, I could walk into any room anywhere in the world and I'll never be surrounded by people who look exactly like me or are of the same background of me based on the fact that I have mixed parentage, um, which is is fine. I mean, I think to a certain extent, no one has that experience, um, but they have the illusion of that experience in, in certain ways. Um, so just kind of thinking about how to navigate identity uh, to me has been such a personal part of the work that I do both as an artist and an activist. But I think, you know, the term of, of artist activist and, and sort of the advocacy component within uh, art and curation has been very uh, front of mind for me, particularly after moving back to the States, um, having spent like six years abroad. Um, I, I left the United States during George Bush's second term in office. I made a conscious choice to leave at that point because mm -hmm. I disagreed so much with what was happening and our wars in the Middle East. And, um, you know, coming back to the United States with sort of a fresh perspective in 2010, uh, during the Occupy Wall Street movement, there was also Occupy Philly movement. Shortly thereafter, with the murder of Trayvon Martin, we had the Black Lives Matter protest that kind of really came and um, here in Philly, especially, we're, we're very important in terms of uh, changing the narrative of like who we are, all of us, yeah. and how our collective privilege, but also the ways that we've all been oppressed in different time periods, 
um, are sort of intersecting and interconnected in ways that really, I think, resonated for me in different ways. Um, and, and kind of having, again, this history of the Japanese American ex experience and my family was forced from their land in California shortly after Pearl Harbor and uh, became homeless in uh, the high desert plains of Utah um, and, you know, worked very hard as sharecroppers to just provide basic necessities for their five children um, at a time period when the entire United States uh, viewed them as the enemy. And, right. uh, you know, that kind of experience as it translates uh, three generations later in my family, um, my, my Obacha, my grandmother was involved in the redress movement, essentially Japanese reparations, Japanese American yeah. reparations. And that was a successful push throughout the 1980s. Um, it was her generation who did it. Um, she played a certain leadership role in the region of the country that she was based in at that time. And I, I feel like that had always been part of our family history. And my relationship to my Japanese American identity has always come with the knowledge that uh, this is something that it has been and continues to be stigmatized um, and can be viewed as a negative by a lot of people, uh, sort of puts a target on our backs at different times. Um, I mean, you look no further than the recent anti-Asian violence during COVID pandemic. Uh, it's not just affecting the Chinese American community. Uh, there's a lot of hate crimes that have taken place against Japanese Americans and other East and Southeast Asians as well. Um, so a lot of those things are just sort of the knowledge of, of what it means to like navigate the world um, in whatever body that you're in. And you kind of come to know these things in, in unspoken ways, I think most of the time, but as an, as an artist and a curator, I wanted to try to give voice to those concerns and issues through the work that I've, I've been doing in my career. And I think when Donald Trump was elected, that was sort of a defining moment in my career where uh, previously I, I had already been organizing film festivals for the express purpose of uh, kind of disproving the stereotypes about Asians and Japanese and Japanese Americans. But um when Trump became elected in 2016, uh, Philadelphia just felt like the, this huge depression and the sky opened up and, and there was rain and it was just this awful downpour. Everyone was depressed. Everyone was hungover the day after Election Day. And then the next day following that was the opening night of our film festival in yeah. 2016. And so, you know, as the festival director trying to rally like our, our staff and our volunteers and the filmmakers and the audience even to, to be excited about being there um, when basically our identities were things that put us on, on a target on our backs um, in the eyes of, of the GOP and, and under Trump administration, um, it became a very intentional act of resistance to be in that space that night and that that week as we celebrated our cultures and our diversity as strengths rather than weaknesses and things that we should be proud of. Um, and I think over time, it kind of uh, embedded itself more both within the organization, the Philadelphia Asian American Film Festival, yeah. as well as kind of my own work as a curator. Um, the, the most obvious example being um, the American Peril exhibit uh, that I curated in 2018 as part of our festival, which looked at uh, if historical periodicals, printed material, ephemera, posters, 
postcards, et cetera, uh, that illustrated some type of anti-Asian racism through mm-hmm. racialized caricatures, uh, largely illustration, largely political satire, but essentially dehumanized Asian peoples from the 1870s until post 9-11 and yeah. how these same tactics basically translated across time period and across community to scapegoat immigrants of whatever era as the reason for all of society's ills. And so, you know, as this was happening in 2018, uh, the Trump administration had recently coined the phrase fake news mm-hmm. and al- alternative facts. And so my, my point was, if I could show you a piece of paper from 1942 that has like the enemy Japanese soldier uh, with like bath, bat wings and vampire teeth, you know, dropping a bomb on, on a group of children. Like you yeah. can't tell me that my family didn't experience racism because of that. Right. right. And right. Uh, that's where, that's where my mind went to. And I think um, obviously there have been other ways that have been more nuanced uh, that we've continued to explore that through both the film festival and the other projects that I'm involved with. But I feel like that's a, a good example to kind of tie all of those ideas together. Thank you. Um, and, and I think it's, I think it's important to, you know, as I was touching on earlier, we always go back to it. You know, um, it's like, like you were touching on, like, this is stuff from the forties and further that, you know, we just come back to like, it's, oh, this is brand new. No, it's not. It's always been there. Um, it's always an undercurrent there. The same as we can have from our different perspectives, have relatives who are still here, you know, tell us like, hey, this is what we experienced. The, the same people who are like, you know, the shit heels are going to be the same. Like they're going to have the same stories. Like, yeah, you know, those Asians are bad. You know, blacks, eh, all I can do is shoot jumpers and sell crack rock. And it's like, that's not what it is. And to say that we we're, this is not who we are, you know, as a people in this this country, it's like, no, nah, history says otherwise. History says otherwise. And and, and I think about um when you mentioned um, that the, the sort of post uh, Trump being elected, I go back to that episode of SNL when it's like um, Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock are in there and they're like, I thought this was like, I didn't expect this. This is this is not new. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe this will happen. Like, well, it's. Yeah. <laughs> and so I want to I want to talk about um, some of the, some of the word because the, that, that you're doing in addition. Um, so we have um, Japan American Society of Greater Philadelphia. We have Shofuso, uh, J- Japanese Cultural Center. Let's talk about that a little bit. What, do, what did your work there entail um, with, you know, within those? And what are some of the things that well, I'll start I'll start there. I'll start there, actually. <laughs> yeah. So uh, in a nutshell, the Japan America Society is a. Uh, citizen diplomacy organization Mm -hmm. and essentially building connections between Japan and the greater Philadelphia region through interpersonal relations, cultural exchanges, business partnerships, uh, and education. And one of the main programs, uh, of course, is the Shofuso Japanese House and Garden. And we have um, a beautiful uh, 17th century style temple guest house that was actually constructed in the 1950s to be displayed at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Um, So the house was actually built in Nagoya, Japan, then taken apart piece by piece, shipped to New York, rebuilt 
in the sculpture garden at, at MoMA's Manhattan Museum, where it lived for two seasons and then was deconstructed and shipped to Philadelphia, where it now stands in the Parkside neighborhood of West Philly. And so um, it's been there since 1958. And at different times in its history, it's been administered by different groups of people. Um, in the 1980s, uh, the house had fallen into a state of disrepair. The city hadn't really invested much into the upkeep or maintenance of the house. And unfortunately, there had been a series of vandalism. And so uh, at one point, the government of Japan threatened to take it back. And it was actually a group of Japanese Americans um, essentially the same generation that my grandmother is, uh, who had resettled here after their wartime incarceration experience. And they saw this one, I think, as a, a great tragedy that this had befallen the Japanese house, uh, being literally the only example of Japanese architecture that was visible here in the city of Philadelphia. Right. But also, I think they saw it as an opportunity amid the redress movement while they were trying to build support and empathy for the experience that the Japanese Americans went through, they saw this as an opportunity to sort of demystify the culture of Japan, but also to demonstrate that, hey, like this is traditional Japanese culture, but we're Japanese Americans. Like we're born and raised in the United States. We have very different experiences, perspectives, and unfortunately um, have experienced the realities of American racism. Yeah. as a result of the way that we look and our parentage and the religions that we practice and so on and so forth. Um, and this this happens also amid the U.S.-Japan trade war of the yeah. 1980s, right? So there were things that were happening all over the country. I mean, Vincent Chin, Chinese-American man, he was beaten to death by two unemployed auto workers in Detroit who thought that he was Japanese, um, you know, who blamed him, scapegoated him for losing their jobs. And so it, it's no coincidence then, this is the same year, 1982, that the Japanese American community in Philadelphia decides to become involved in the Shofuso House and Garden and upkeep it. And so, you know, fast forward almost 40 years later, yeah. and uh, we're basically at a point now where uh, unfortunately all of those elders have since passed on. And there had been, uh, I think, a loss of memory within the institution. But we also have. Um, within you know all Asian American communities, there is constant immigration, right? And some communities it's more visible than others, but uh, we do have uh, a, a large and growing Japanese expat community here in Philadelphia, and that's the group that has been most recently associated with the Japanese House and Garden. So when I was hired uh, to come into this organization in August of 2021, it was sort of a twofold uh, role to one sort of reestablish this connection to the Japanese American multi-generational community, um, the folks who have been here since before World War II, for example, yeah. and still have a very important role, I think, within uh, the remembrance and, and also cultural maintenance of how Japanese culture is practiced and, and remembered and transmitted to other publics um, here in our region. Uh, which, unfortunately, that connection had been lost a little bit, um, yeah. just based on time and, and transition of leadership. The second part is that the reality, you know, Parkside, West Philadelphia, is a 95% African-American neighborhood. And most of the community members and the local residents didn't really see Shofuso as a place for them. And I think that's often the case when you have cultural institutions in neighborhoods that are predominantly black or brown, where the cultural institution is not reflective of that. 
Um, and so a lot of the work that I've been doing over the last year and a half is trying to find ways to sort of celebrate the things that we have in common. And um, I found music to actually be the most exciting uh, way to do that. Um, we had a, we have an annual cherry blossom festival and last year we actually devoted the programming entirely to this exploration of the overlap and shared musical culture among and between Japanese, Japanese Americans and African-Americans looking at sort of historically black music genres like blues, like funk, like jazz, like reggae. And how is that practiced and celebrated both in Japan and among Japanese American musicians? And so it was a really incredible uh, experience to just kind of open up the festival in that capacity and just see how the musicians interacted with one another and, and how I, it just totally made sense to everyone who was part of the lineup and everyone that was there in the audience, uh, really excited to, to see and celebrate and think about, you know, what are some of these ways that we already do exist and coexist and um, overlap um, and in that shared cultural space. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's just one example, but um, we've done a lot of work with some of the local schools uh, where we're sort of exploring more in the educational setting. Yeah. What is the overlap of the history of activism among Japanese Americans and African Americans and looking at the civil rights era and, and folks like Yuri Kochiyama, who was one of the really important Japanese American activists in New York City, also a close confidant of Malcolm X became like one of his most trusted friends throughout the last years of his life, um, working on a variety of causes in New York, or uh, even more close to home, uh, Kiyoshi Kuromiya, who was born in the Heart Mountain incarceration camp in World War II. He came to school here at University of Pennsylvania and uh, became totally passionate about the, the struggle for black liberation and was one of the first non-black marchers in the Selma Montgomery marches um, and became actually very close friends with Dr. King uh, to, to the point that, um, you know, his family and him continued to stay in touch even after Dr. King's assassination. Um, that's, that's, I mean, you're, you're laying it on me, man. It's, um, it's great to hear these things because like, uh, this is all new for me. And it's just like, I got a list of things now I'm going to dive into and like, yeah. So remember back in the day when this was happening, we always rock with the Japanese folk, the Japanese American folk as well, you know, having that delineation there. And I think, you know, when we, we talk about it, there's not a lot of those conversations on where there is some sort of common ground and some sort of connection. And I think it doesn't lead to that sort of discourse and that sort of exchange. But what you were describing there, I'm just hearing vision. I'm just mm. hearing really unique ways to bringing communities together. And I I love it, frankly. And I think all the time we hear, oh, well, these people don't get along moving on. And it's like, how do you know? Like, why are you the person saying it? You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's always someone that has something to gain of showing this sort of dissension. But if these certain different like marginalized groups kind of get together and show that there is some connection, there's so many new things that can be built out of that. In, in my experience, too, it's not usually someone from either of our communities that are telling us that either. <laughs> well, you're not wrong there, sir. <laughs> no, that, that's that's true. And, you know, you, you see, I remember, like, I go out of my way to try to be as, you know, open and try to hit, like, for me, you know, I'm going to have my own sort of 
what my experience is. I'm a black man. So that's where I kind of know who I can talk to, you know, starting off. But then from there, it's just like, all right, whose work interests me? Who I think have an interesting story? And it's as broad as possible. And, you know, full disclosure, obviously, this is the second time we're recording this interview because I don't know how to record. But, you know, we had that that piece of exchange. You know, you took me to the uh, the coffee place. And that was a very special moment for me. You know, small, but a special when someone takes you to one of their places and is like, hey, you should try this. I drink that immediately, by the way. And uh, it, it's it's big. And I think that that's a sort of exchange. So now on the other side of it, I'm like, all right, this is what I like. You should try this. You know, maybe it's the my my famous uh, Japanese influenced crab cakes. Uh, I'll put you on later. I'll put you on later. And that's just what it is. And that's a natural thing. And, you know, when we go back to some of the really terrible things that have happened over the last few years, I remember I was doing an interview I think it was maybe Lunar New Year with a a Chinese business owner who who had us had a spot in Baltimore. And this was like when some of the vandalism and some of that stuff started before it got even to the ongoing violence and so on. All the news was showing black people are attacking Asian people. And I was like, what we're like 13% of the country? And I was like, all right, everyone? All right, cool. Keep smoking those fire, you know, passing that fire along and that smoke. And it's just like this is the same thing. There's a, a rich history of what I like to say is, and I, I don't know anything, I'm just speaking from my position, is more miscommunication and isolated things that get blown out to show that, hey, these minority groups can't get along for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think in going back to it, the full circle to tie it up, just, you know, when there's an opportunity to do something, um, you know, where you were talking about the, the Cherry Blossom Festival, I'm like, immediately, yes. Or um, I, I, I recently fell back in love with watching basketball. And, you know, locally we have the, the Wizards close. That's the closest thing here. And you have Rui Hashimura. And I was like, he's Japanese and he's black. Let's go. He goes by like the black samurai. I was like, that's fire. That is fire. He has like this, uh, I think he has like this maybe kimono or um, Hayori. I know I'm mispronouncing it. That um, has like the cherry blossoms on there. I was like, this is fire. That's a fire fit. I love it. Let's make it happen. That's there, there's there's something there that can be blown up a bit more, but your average person won't know that that sort of connection exists. Yeah, that's the thing that gets me. Well, and uh, let's not forget Sister Naomi Osaka. I mean, yep. she's also killing it for Absolutely. tennis. And, you know, again, bringing communities together. But when I think about like how these things are sort of embedded, and like we just we don't know because people don't want us to know. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's such a rich history, and I think especially on the east, the West Coast, right, uh, when the Japanese Americans were removed forcibly from their homes and businesses and evicted and brought to the prison camps because of the redlining and the racially segregated neighborhoods of Los Angeles and San Francisco, other West Coast cities, Oakland included, uh, when African Americans came from the South to work in the shipbuilding factories, Guess where they lived? Japan towns, which were empty. And so when eventually the Japanese Americans were let out of these prison camps and started trickling back to the West Coast, yeah. suddenly Japan towns became these incredibly diverse, rich cultural exchanges where, for example, Los Angeles, uh, Japan town was known at that time period as Bronzeville. Mm. It was renamed after the African American Business District in Chicago. And uh, it became a place of jazz clubs, 
Um, they used to call them uh, breakfast clubs because they would stay open till the next morning. <laughs> and so when the Japanese Americans came back, I mean, a lot of these guys were into jazz music too, right? Like they were musicians. They were swing jazz musicians that went and came back and then suddenly found in their own neighborhood jazz clubs that they could play at. And so you have Japanese American jazz musicians that were playing with all black jazz groups. And you have African Americans that are eating at the sukiyaki joints and like shopping at the Japanese grocery stores. And that's just something that was firmly embedded in like West Coast urban culture. Yeah. And the same thing is true of, of Oakland and San Francisco, Japantown and the Fillmore district. And, um, you know, for the most part, the, there's a lineage that continues from that of these communities, not just living together and exchanging culturally, but organizing together too. Yeah. So, and, and thank you that this is this, like I said, this has been, I think this might be better than the first one. Uh, but uh, I, I want to, in this, these, these final moments, before we get to rapid fire, I want to do something I've not done before. I'm going to throw it to you. What is the question, including your work, including your background that you've never been asked or you feel like you would love to be asked, but haven't really had the opportunity or the space to be asked that question, you know, kind of like this sort of open question, like whatever you want to kind of like talk about in this like sort of final real point before we get to the goofy rapid fire questions. You know, um, it's not a question so much, uh, maybe it's more of a, a, a wonder or consideration of like, you know, as someone who does work that is so tightly contained within sort of a historical narrative, historical experience, and obviously a, a very specific identity, it's sometimes hard for me to get a sense of how much of what I'm doing resonates with general audiences. Like I know that I have a, a group of people in the Japanese American community and then other communities who have experienced similar parallel marginalization yeah. who see what I'm doing and understand it, um, relate to it, participate in it, celebrate it and to some extent. Um, but again, it's it's kind of like at what point does that only kind of live within an echo chamber of people who have had a, a particular experience. That's kind of where I think I, as a, as a curator, especially, um, I'm constantly struggling to figure out how do we reach the people that really need to hear this the most, um, when we have work art, art or music or film that is inherently political, yeah. how do we reach the audiences that we know disagree with us? and still do something that is meaningful and, and sort of lives by our code of ethics and, and uh, while at the same time engaging those audiences, is it even possible? So yeah, that's, I guess, the, the broader wonder, um, not a question or an answer. It's, that's, I think, similar to, and there's always a short, a sort of, at least my two cents on it, there's always this sort of, I go back to the the Daryl Davis like documentary, right? And you know he's like getting he's getting hoods from from a Klansman or what have you. So that's in the the worst. And he's a black man musician, all of that stuff. And I, I can say this, you know, when he was here in Baltimore, you know, when I first watched the documentary, I was like, who is this dude? I was like tight just for whatever reason, just natural response. And I was like, what are you doing? Is this a bit? And seeing some of the folks who are in this sort of activist lane that were here and we're talking five to seven years ago at this point that maybe even a little bit longer 
that just weren't inviting. It's like, no, this is how you do activism. This is how you approach this. And he's speaking to and doing this sort of work. And from what I understand, the work was being done earnestly. It wasn't like for, you know, um, for some of like cloud or fame or what have you. He's going into a very rough space and changing hearts and minds, or at least the intent is. And instead of trying to lean in, and I know it's not only here, but I would imagine many people were like, no, that shouldn't be happening. These people are scum. You shouldn't even be wasting your time. But I, I still believe in my blackest of black hearts <laughs> that um, that there's a connecting thing that makes us all humans. And I think that it, it's something that can be taken from that. And I don't believe in throwing away people. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but I'm saying the opportunity where you can maybe talk to someone that, that I think a lot of it is born out of ignorance, propaganda, mm -hmm. and just people positioning things. And we see it. We see it all the time. I think, you know, as we go and see more and more news and see like, oh, this is the real story in like the social media space. And this is the approved upon reality in the um, mass media sort of space. We, we see those sort of differences. Mm -hmm. And I think when someone's trying something, at least the effort, the attempt is something worthwhile. And um yeah, I think I'm on the I think I'm in the same boat with you though when it comes to that. So with that, um I want to go into some rapid fire questions with you. And uh I've changed them so you could be <laughs> uh so all right, I got I got a couple of them for you. Um and I definitely said I wanted to touch back on uh Japanese cinema. So if you will, you know, rapid fire, could you tell us three hallmarks? of uh, Japanese cinema from like the movies you grew up watching, the movies that even now really pop for you, or even like, you know, what you do from a critical standpoint, what are those hallmarks uh, that come to mind for you? For someone that knows nothing, even your fellow, uh, your, your fellow and uh, noble podcaster here who knows nothing about Japanese cinema, I'm going to be asking for a list soon. Uh, but what are the hallmarks? Yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm glad you didn't ask me to just pick one film because that would have been a much more difficult question, but I'll, I'll tell you this, you know, like with Japanese cinema, um, the history of Japanese cinema dates back to the birth of cinema, right? So yeah. like we've had 130 some odd years now of filmmaking in Japan and uh, every genre that's come out in the West has existed within Japan. So, you know, just a, a kind of 20,000 yard view of it, um, Yasujiro Ozu, I think is is one of the most important directors of any nationality of all time um, who did really important uh, contemporary dramas kind of starting in, in the um, early 30s and working through the uh, late 1950s. Tokyo Story is probably his best known film and I think a great place to start with that. Um, you know, just a, a small tidbit on him. He had a quote that uh, said, if we are Japanese, we should make Japanese things. And he wanted to try to make Japanese films in a style and an aesthetic and approach that made sense as it being Japanese um, and did so by introducing the tatami shot. So giving you the camera lens view of what it looks like when you're sitting or kneeling on a tatami floor as people do in, inside of a traditional house in Japan. Um, so that's one, I, I guess, um, you know, I have to throw in, of course, uh, Yojimbo, which is one of my all-time favorite action films um, starring Toshiro Mifune, directed by Kurosawa Akira. Um, you know, one of the most lauded director-actor duos of all time. 
um, Yojimbo is the the film that inspired A Fistful of Dollars, the first film in the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly trilogy oh, wow. starring Clint Eastwood. And so it was adapted from this film where Mifune is a wandering samurai who comes into this rural town and a sake brewer and a silk merchant are at war with each other and they've all hired mercenaries to fight each other and they're at a standstill. And so he plays them off each other, pretends to work for both, ends up killing everyone and uh, rids the town of all the bad guys in just like hands down one of the most badass pieces of cinema um, of all time. Uh, beautifully shot, beautifully acted, um, and and just a thrill to watch. Um, and then I guess, uh, you know, for the last one, um, I'll just go with one of my personal favorites, uh, Itami Juzo. He was a, act, a filmmaker, director that was active in the 1980s primarily. Um, and he did a film called Tampopo, which is about the ramen shops in Japan, um, basically, kind of tongue-in-cheek, you know, how they say spaghetti Western for the Italian-made Western <laughs> films. He wanted to do a, a noodle Western, where basically <laughs> the context is a couple truck drivers come into town looking for the best bowl of ramen and find this dive that, you know, they get jumped in. And then he has to help the the single uh, wife who, who, you know, was widowed to become a better ramen cook in order to beat the rest of the, the you know, shops in town. Um, but in the process, is it's just this beautiful exploration of the relationship to food that different people of different age groups and demographics have within Japan at that time period of like the 1980s bubble economy. Um, just a really unique insight to that time period in Japan. But um, as a food lover, I mean, it's a an, not-miss an film. You've you've given me several things to watch because I, I didn't have the the sort of entry point. Now it's just like oh okay cool because uh, I want to say this 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 is showing you a thing where um, I, I was watching I, I watch a lot of Japanese pro wrestling so I'm I'm already there I'm already there in that regard or what have you and I'm picking up different pieces I was like did he just call him an mf'er I was like all right cool cool this is great and. Um, and I recently like finished uh, Tokyo Vice and I got my brother into it. And he's like, yo, it's a lot of subtitles here. However, this is a fire show. And he was like, you know what? He's like, I'm here for it. He's like, I can read and enjoy this visual. He's like, this is great. And that was kind of the, the thing that stopped me for a long time. But now it's kind of like, oh, no, this is just normal now. This is normal because I don't speak the language. And now like having an interest in learning the language enough that it's like, oh, I could follow along here and be even more immersed. So now I have at least three movies that I'm going to be watching. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, so I got two more questions for you. Uh, are you more of a thinker or a doer? I'm a doer, but I'm constantly in thought when I'm active. Um, my My wife gives me shit about it all the time <laughs> you know it's it's the kind of thing where i wish i could turn my brain off sometimes but um i get so lost in thought and uh i'm constantly moving so you know in one sense i am doing those things uh there's but there is some strategy behind the, the things that i'm doing yeah mm -hmm. I, I think we have uh how people and why people in this like I know why I'm doing this. The how sometimes can be tricky. And that's where you start getting into the sort of the, the strategy and the uh, execution of things. I'm definitely a why person, but I think it's important to know the, the sort of how components. 
but how are we going to get there? And like, maybe even when, when should we do this? Mm. And the why drives it though. Uh, here's the last one. Um, so I believe words are important. Um, and being a person of biracial identity and being, and I, there are some pronunciations that I've butchered during this podcast that I was like, thanks Rob. <laughs> <laughs> so in your opinion, what is the most powerful word? When you think of a powerful word, what pops in your mind? It could be, you know, English, Japanese, Spanish, whatever you got. Uh, but what is like the most powerful word that comes to mind? Um, I've had people in the past say love. I've had people in the past say, uh, no. Um, so for you, what is the most powerful word that comes to mind? I'm sort of torn between two. Both of them are Japanese. Um, the one that I think is just universally powerful is this idea of gaman, which is uh, loosely translates to enduring the seemingly unbearable with patience and dignity. And it's something that uh, has often been used to describe the experience of Japanese Americans during the wartime incarceration in World War II sort of uh, trying to turn the other cheek and prove that they were loyal Americans uh, by accepting the extreme racism of that era. Um, the other one being which is uh, to devote your entire being to a singular task. And I, I think um, describes it very well. I think a lot of the craftspeople and artisans and artists um, in Japan and, and certainly elsewhere throughout the world. Um, but I love that idea. Uh, of devoting your entire self to a singular task. And um, I think as artists and creatives, that that should be the thing that we all strive for. Well said. Thank you. I've learned two new, two new words. I'm going to throw them around like I actually know them. This is going to be great. Uh, <laughs> so in the final moments here, I want to again, uh, thank you for being on this podcast and uh, making the time for me in this this sort of like series. Um, it's great to have you as an addition to this Philadelphia Focus series. And um, I want to invite and encourage you to tell the fine folks where they can check you out, Japan American Society, Japan American Society, and all of the, the great work that you're doing. The floor is yours. Thanks. Yeah. So I think uh, for Japan American Society, our website's easy to remember. It's japanphilly.org. And you can find all sorts of information about the uh, opening hours of the Shofuso House and Garden, which is open from March until uh, end of uh, November, Wednesday through Sunday from 11 to 5. Um, we also have the Cherry Blossom Festival that's coming up uh, this year, April 15th and 16th. But we have an entire month-long film program. We're actually doing a seven-film retrospective of Toshiro Mifune films that sort of uh, cross-section of his early Japanese noir films where he plays like Yakuza or Detectives in sort of the gritty post-war Tokyo, as well as some of these classic like Chambara Samurai, like just kind of shoot them up with swords. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great mix of all those films together, but uh, seven of them on 35 millimeter that'll be at the Lightbox Film Center throughout the month of April. So um, yeah, um, hope that people are interested in some of the things that we talked about. Um, if you want to listen to the podcast I mentioned earlier, it's available on Anchor and Spotify, pretty much anywhere that other podcasts are. And that's Look Towards the Mountain, stories from Heart Mountain Incarceration Camp. And there you have it, folks. Again, for uh, Rob Busher of the Japan America Society of Greater Philadelphia, I'm Rob Lee, saying that there's art, culture, and community in and around your city. 
You've just got to look for it. 